So, I always like to put the date on the first slide. Uh, nearly always I get it right, but it's just a good thing to remind us it's another day, so we're thinking about something else. Now, last week, Nick helped us by starting off this overview of the Old Testament, and this is the poster that we've sort of put in various places and things. And these words are summing up, I think, what the Old Testament is about and what you see in the Old Testament. God encounters and its history and its obedience and disobedience and there's genealogies and there's rulers that are happening and there's intrigue and love and revival and adventure. And so as we sort of read the Old Testament ourselves at home, hopefully over these next couple of months, so we'll see lots of these words happening. Of course, you know, I'm a planning kind of person, so already we know what's going to happen over the next two months, who's going to speak, what they're going to speak on. And for the following two months, for the New Testament, I've got people speaking already lined up, but they're the subjects, and all of this is on the internet, on our website. So if you're wondering at any time what's going to happen this Sunday, just look on our website or look on our Facebook page or look in the Onward. It says lots of things that's going on. Of course, concurrently to that, we've got the Bible course that we've spoken on about already that a lot of us will be uh, doing on a Monday night. And three people from other churches are going to come along. So it's going to be great to see them tomorrow and to make them feel welcome here and learn about the Bible together. So there's the list of dates. It's funny how we have one and then the next one's about a month later because two weeks after is a bank holiday. So we've got tomorrow and then it's going to be the 10th of June when we'd meet after that. That's a brief introduction. A brief introduction from Nick last week mentioned some of these words. And I thought I'd just say one or two extra things about it because Nick had so much to say, that was great. He wouldn't have fitted it all in. He'd have been here till like half past two or half past three or the next day or something like that, wouldn't it? So here's just a brief few thoughts what Nick would have said, but he was looking at the clock. So that's good. The Hebrew Bible then, we were knowing that it's in Hebrew, but not all in Hebrew, and it's not as old as we think it is. The Septuagint, it's called the Septuagint because 70 people around about translated it. And so it's a Greek word for 70. That's easy. Vulgate, so this was in Latin, and it was Jerome who uh, translated most of it. The interesting thing about this is Vulgate means common or colloquial. And so they put it into Latin because then common people could understand it. Can you hear the question in my voice? Mm. Yeah. So to me, calling it the common Bible, the common language Bible, kind of didn't really do it. But it did allow the priests to talk about it and, and things, so that at least was a good thing. But, of course, we talked about the colloquial and common language, the vernacular, if you like, but that was banned. If you had a Bible in English, which there weren't many because it was banned, you'd be a heretic. If you remember, there's three main names. John Wycliffe, who was in the 14th century, William Tyndale, and he was in the early 16th century, and then Jan Hus, who was from Prague. And they were all sort of had their issues, shall we say, with the church at the time, the church with a capital C, because there was only really one church then, the Catholic Church. 
And they had their issues, quite a few issues, with the church at the time. And one of them was they wanted people that are just normal, like all of us, to be able to read the Bible in normal language, a language that people could understand. But that was not allowed. So Tyndale, he was burnt at the stake for disagreeing with the church. That was in uh, Belgium. Jan Hus, he was burnt at the stake as well. But William Tin, uh, sorry, John Wycliffe, he, didn't, he wasn't burnt at the stake only because he died of a stroke. And that was only in Lutterworth. So he was quite a local chap. And he was the local rector of the parish church in Lutterworth, just a few miles away. So English versions, we're very fortunate, aren't we, in having so many. I don't know, in Korean and French and other languages, are there loads and loads of versions or not that much? No, yeah, depends on the language, doesn't it? But in English, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of different languages. And we're so fortunate because hundreds of years ago, that just wasn't allowed. We'd have to be really good at Latin or you wouldn't understand it. It would be no good. Okay, just hold on, because if we want to hear it, we're not going to hear you on the website. No, not shouting. Oh, right, okay. yeah. The Septuagint um, was translated from the sort of local languages into Greek 300 years before Jesus. Now, the reason was because Greek was the common language. So, in fact, the Septuagint was sort of like good news for modern man for the Greeks at that time. So that the history of putting the, the scriptures into the common language goes back to the Vulgate. Yes, for us, it's Latin, but for the people at the time, it was the common language. So it was another attempt to put the scriptures back into the common language. So there's been this long tradition of trying to hide the scriptures and then people bringing it back into the common language. So the history of having the, 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 the scriptures in different languages goes way, way, way back to the very beginning. Um, so Jesus actually used the Septuagint. So he was using a Greek-based language, um, and he was using a Greek Bible, which would be like one of our most modern translations. And that's what he was using. Lovely stuff. Great. I'll keep this on, just in case anyone else wants to interject. Because it's great, isn't it? We've all got things we can learn. And this isn't the thing on a Sunday morning for one person to be stood at the front and everyone else kind of listens a bit, thinks about their lunch a bit, snoozes a bit, listens again a bit. But it's all about we can listen and encourage each other, can't we, by interjecting if that's appropriate. On to the next slide. There are, and you know all this, 39 books in our Old Testament, but there's only 24 in the Hebrew Bible. And that's because some of the books that we separate are put as one book. So there's no such thing as one and two Chronicles or one and two Kings, one and two Samuel. It's one book. It's Samuel. It's Kings. It's Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah, one book. The 12 Minor Prophets, one book. So that's why if you sort of uh, want to spruce up on your Hebrew and you sort of read it, sort of uh, going this way, of course, you'll look at it and there's only 24 books that you'll find because that's all it is. It's just a bit different, but that's interesting, I find. And so there's three sections to the Hebrew Bible. The Torah, which we're going to be looking at today, then the Nevi'v, the prophets, and that's the former, the latter, 
and the minor prophets. So the former prophets are like the Samuel, Kings, and things like that. We'll look at that in a minute. And then the writings. So if we're going to separate them all out, they're the different three sections and the order of the books in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. If you have a quick scan, you'll see it's different from the normal sort of canon that we have, isn't it? So we're looking at the Pentateuch today. Although, interestingly, I just called it the Torah. What is that then? Pentateuch. Greek word, Pentateuchos. Five scrolls. Remember, one book, one scroll. So five books, five scrolls. So it's easy peasy. That's why they've called it. They just called it a very literal thing, didn't they? Oh, there's five scrolls there. Let's call it five scrolls. It's very easy, isn't it? But the Torah which means instruction, teaching, or law. It's the same five books, but just the Hebrew instead. Now, Moses is traditionally thought to have written nearly all of the Pentateuch, or compiled it. And it's interesting, because in the Jewish tradition, they call it five-fifths of the law of Moses. I'll say it again. I don't often say things again, but they call it the five-fifths of the law of Moses. In other words... All of it. Five-fifths of the law of Moses. But it's interesting, again, because some scholars don't think it was Moses. They think it was J-E-D-P. And if you want to read about this J-E-D-P, these different sources that you get, have a read of it. That's quite interesting. It's great to sort of see what other people think. We might not agree with it, but it just helps us to stretch our thoughts, doesn't it? Because we can still be thinkers as well as Christians. We don't have to switch off our intellect, do we, if we're Christians? I really like Moses, because I like numbers, and Moses' life helpfully splits into three, doesn't it? We had 40 years where he was kind of growing up, and he was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so he was in the court of the Pharaoh for 40 years, and then he went to Midian for 40 years, And then he came back to Egypt very briefly, and then all the Israelites left uh, their slavery and wandered around the desert for 40 years again. So, yeah, I don't think my life is going to split like that. I don't think anyone generally does, but Moses, I, I think it's brilliant that he has 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. So, these are the five books that we're going to be looking at today. Maybe you've read them all in the past. Maybe you've read them all lots of times if you've done the SBS and you're doing very well at it or you've done the SBS in the past and you know more about it than most of us. But I've still got a few thoughts, hopefully, that will help us. These are all the chapters and the verses because it's, again, good to have some numbers. And if you're wondering how long it's going to take you to read each book, there's a bit of an idea about that. And I think if you add them up, if you're going to read it all in one go, it comes to 14 hours. Just to read from Genesis 1.1 to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse something. Uh, and uh, that, it's, it's only a short chapter, I remember that, but I can't remember how many verses. But that would be 14 hours altogether. So, are you ready? Do you want to come and wander through those five books with me this morning? Oh, that's great. Otherwise, I'd be on my own, wouldn't I? But it's not going to take as many years as 
or those five, uh, those five books, because who knows how many years Genesis is for, and we know kind of that Exodus, Leviticus, Deut- Numbers, Deuteronomy are kind of 120 years, because it's mostly about Moses, isn't it, and the Israelites. We're going to wander them. If you remember, on Discover the Bible page on our website, there is a page, uh, a thing, where you can just click the orange arrow, uh, orange stars, and it will tell you a little bit about the books of the Bible. And that's in the Onward magazine. So every fortnight, there's another book of the Bible that's in it, and they're all on our website. So you just get lots of things. So if you want to discover more about the Bible, there's loads of resources on the internet, and it's just we're doing one thing in our church as well. So, all a brief introduction. That's people wandering. You said already you're going to come wandering with me. So let's go there. Here is Genesis then. So as I was reading it this week, I tried to split each book of the Pentateuch into a little table like that. Now, of course, when you look at it, you might just see a word that will just say, oh yeah, I know exactly what that's talking about. That sort of really is inferential for me. That makes such a difference. And that's great because we can see it and just say, oh yeah, like at the very beginning. What's at the beginning of the Bible? God. God is right at the beginning. In the beginning, God. So God is chapter one. That's what's in brackets, the chapter number. And there's lots of things there we could talk about. Have to think about it at home. It's all on the website, and you can just think about it there. At the top, we've got what the word means. So Genesis is a Greek word meaning birth, genealogy, origin. Exodus, same sort of thing. It's a Latin word meaning exit or departure. Leviticus. Now, some people just don't really enjoy reading Leviticus. It's a bit dry, they think. But it's all to do with the Levites. That's, that's great, because they were needing rules and help to know what to do with what their duties were. And so they're just being told, this is the best thing to do. This is the way to go. Go for it. Numbers. Now, of course, Numbers has got a bit more action than the Leviticus, but... The Greek word is based on the census lists, and there's two censuses taken in the book. But the Hebrew word is bemidbar, and that means in the desert. And so when I look at it, I think to myself, ah, that's a bit more descriptive of what's going on. I'm just going to go back two slides. I forgot to say something quite important. Here we go. On the first column... Third one down, Passover. Do you remember we said about William Tyndale? He invented that word, Passover. He invented the word Passover. He also invented the word scapegoat. And there's lots of things that William Tyndale said and phrases that he used that we still use. My brother's keeper. Loads of them. I read dozens of them the other day. But uh, I thought I'd just mention that because we sort of think about the Passover... Because it's the passing over. But he called it Passover. That's William Tyndale for you. Isn't he brilliant? Okay, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the repetition of the law. Why did they need the law repeated? Because nearly all of the Israelites that had come out of Egypt had died. And so the law needed to be said again because all these new, vibrant Israelites who wanted to go into the promised land needed to hear 
what God was saying. And uh, so, yeah, God made sure it happened again so that they'd hear his law and would understand it and put it into practice. That's a little brief thing about it. And you could go home and look at the Pentateuch, the five books, and really go to town on it. And, and so could we. If we could have a, 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 yeah, a month on each of the books and just talk about them ever so easily. But then we'd be doing it for five years. And so th- that's probably not such a good idea. So that's why we're kind of thinking about it briefly. But then you can think about it at home. Are there any macro themes, big themes, themes that are really important for us to think about from the Pentateuch? I think there are two. One's about God and one's about us. God is creative, loving, kind, faithful, holy, just and merciful If you read the Pentateuch, any of the five books, you'll see lots of these characteristics of God on every page. You'll just sort of see what's going on. He's saying these laws and rules and commands because he loves us and he wants wants what's best for us. Just like when our parents say things, sometimes it's a bit, oh, when you're young and you just maybe a bit more disagreement in your head about how you believe things go on in life. But they're saying things for our own good, aren't they? Just like God is as well. So God is all those things. How about us, we? We tend to mess up fairly frequently. Sometimes we're sorry, and sometimes we don't care. The Israelites could have gone across the desert in 11 days. It took 40 years because of their sin, their grumbling, their disobedience from God. But God doesn't just stick there. There's the covenants that he talks about. And in the Pentateuch, there's going to be three covenants that you read about. There are more later as well. The Noahic, the Abrahamic, and then the Mosaic, where God reaches out to his creation, God says, I can see the predicament you're in. I love you. Remember the rainbow. Remember the land that you're passing over. Remember that you're going into a promised land. God is reaching out to his creation. That's what's happening with all of these covenants that are in the Pentateuch. Now, someone mentioned it this morning already. I can't remember who it was. I meant to write it down. But there was a happy event. And it really reminded me of something. Because when I saw baby Archie, I thought to myself, God doesn't want us to be childish. Because if we're childish, we might be some of these things. Grumpy, moody, silent. That's not my fault. I didn't do that. Fearful. We might say, yes, okay, but a lot. Or we only think about the immediacy, the immediateness of it. So God doesn't call us to be childish. Remember how Paul said, when I was a little child, I talked and felt and thought like a little child. Now that I'm a man, my childish speech and feeling and thought have no further significance for me. 
That's the Philip's New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, 11. So God doesn't call us to be childish when we're reading his rules and commands and learning about the covenants. God calls us to be childlike. He's saying, don't have any buts when you say yes to me. Be trusting, smiling, curious, excited. I remember how Jesus brought a child in front of all these uh, experts and he said this to them. Jesus called a small child over to him and set the little fellow down among them and said, unless you turn to God from your sins and become as little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, anyone who humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it's the verse, there's the, a word in verse 3 that really affects me and perhaps affects you as well. And it's this word, strepho, turning. Because when you look it up, it's taken an opposite or divergent course, a dynamic change. It's to turn. And the thing is this, when I sort of think about it, I think that as humans, we're on a trajectory towards a certain and catastrophic collision. Hell. And by turning from the way we want to go, our opinions, our thoughts, what we think is best, and turn to what God says, we avert going to this certain and catastrophic collision. And so that's what God wants us to do, not just once when we give our lives to him, but we want to, he wants us to become, as one version says, dramatically change your way of thinking and become teachable. God wants us to be teachable even now, so that as we listen to God in our homes and here and in other people's homes, so we can hear him speak to us. And, we, and as he says, do something, so we'll say, yes, Lord, I will. Not, yes, Lord, but I can't do it now, or but that won't, that's not possible. We can say in childlike faith, Yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you say. No buts, no ifs, but I'm following you and I'm following what you're saying throughout the Bible. There's all of us. I was trying to think of a, a good phrase this week. Being a disciple of Jesus necessitates being like a child, but, but I couldn't think of the next few words. So I've just put dot, dot, dot. And what I want you to do when you're at home is maybe think of the start of this phrase being a disciple of Jesus necessitates being like a child, but, and then just ask the Lord, what does it mean to you? What's the rest of the sentence for you? We want to be like a child, but we need to be not just childlike, but have some extra bits. Maybe you can think about that at home. I'm a fan of church history, and I know some of you are as well. So if I put this man's face up, and put his name up, you will... Some of you will have heard of him. Some of you will think, ah, he's a triple jumper as well. And he is, but he doesn't wear a wig because he's a different person, the triple jumper is. But this amazing man was from America. And in the 18th century, he made two resolutions in his life. I'm going to tell you both of them because they're really stirring me when I read them and think about them. So he made two resolutions. The first one, I will live for God. So this is what Jonathan Edwards said. 
I'm working out the number of years ago, 300 years ago. I will live for God. The second resolution, if no one else does, I still will. And for me, the first one is easy. Because, yeah, I'm going to live for God. And I really mean it. But then if I'm in a situation where no one else is living for God, how easy is that? To still say, yes, God, I'm 100% following you. You are my master. You are my Lord. All I'm going to do is follow what you have to say. It doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter the situation. I'm going to follow you 100% because you are my Lord. Something else for you to ponder about is resolution number two. So we've thought about God is creative, loving, kind, faithful, holy, just and merciful. And as you read the Pentateuch, you will see those things. Also, we've read and thought about briefly that we tend to mess up fairly frequently. Sometimes we're sorry, and perhaps sometimes we don't care about it. But the crux of what I want to say, this is the bottom line today, is God is still reaching out to his creation. And just as we were practicing this morning in the worship group, I had this thought, and I thought, yeah, that's great. I like pictures. I think about things such a lot in pictures. And so I was thinking about God sitting on his throne. I'll just go across because I need to see Keith. Keith, do you mind being a volunteer? You don't need to move. You don't need to say anything. Keith is at the back, and he's, he's going to do great. God is reaching out to Keith. Keith, could you reach out to God, please? Could you do it with a bit more feeling, please? <laughs> a bit more energy. And you can look at Keith, if you like, because he's really trying his best. Great, this is great. How far away am I to Keith? I'll say, I'm a chasm away. Keith is reaching out, but he's nowhere near. And I'm God, and I'm just reaching out as well. That's not how God worked, though, is it? What does it say in John 1? It says that God came and lived among us. He wasn't on his throne. He wasn't saying, Keith or anyone, Barbara or Kath or Jill... Just reach out to me, but reach a lot harder because there's a great chasm. And I'm, I'm kind of reaching out in a godly kind of way, but you need to work harder. Jesus has paid the price for us. Jesus has made it happen. He walked amongst us. So now Keith doesn't have to reach out very far because Jesus comes to Keith. God has come and touched Alan. And he says, I love you, Alan. And he comes across to Jeff as well. And he says, here I am. So Jeff can reach out a little bit, but who's done the most work? Yeah. And that's the story of the Pentateuch. God is reaching out to creation. God is still reaching out to creation today. He's not just sitting on his throne. He's not just saying reach out to me, do what you can. But he's with us. He dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. He loves us. He is holy. He is faithful, merciful, just. And all these words, 
And we don't do it right all the time. But God comes along and hugs us and loves us and says, I am with you. Come and be with me. We talked about Jonathan Edwards saying, if no one else does, I still will. And that reminded me this morning of Joshua. I'm going to finish after I've read this. Because right at the end of Joshua, he was kind of uh, old chap. And he was given a, uh, a lesson, uh, sort, of a, a, sort of a teaching to the Israelites there. And saying, why don't you just listen to me and follow what you have to say? There we go. I can see it better now. So this is what Joshua says in chapter 24. And this is what it's going to be great for us to say. As Jonathan Edwards says, I will live for God. If no one else does, I still will. This is Joshua chapter 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems uh, undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that's today as well. It's up to us to say, yes, Lord, whatever happens to those around me, just as Jonathan Edwards says, I will live for God. If no one else does, I still will. We can say, I am going to choose to serve God, to do what he says, wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, I will serve God. Love is the centre of the Pentateuch. Love is the centre of the Old Testament. And as we say, Lord, let your love reign in me, so we can say, thank you, Lord, that you are the light of my salvation. You are the one that's leading me. So I'm going to pray, and then Jill's going to help us to respond to this holy God that we can serve. Thank you, Lord, that you reach out to us. Thank you, Lord, that you came and lived among us. Thank you that you still are among us. We need your help, Lord, because as we read your word, we see all the grumbling and the Israelites not being happy and sinning with a golden calf and wanting to go back to Egypt. And sometimes, Lord, we say we want to do similar things. We don't want to. It's hard following you wholeheartedly. But Lord, we say we will follow you. We will give our lives to you. So, Lord, will you move among us again and do something in our lives? Because we want to honour you by what we say, think and do. Because we love you, Lord. Amen.